2 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to bring something from the New Testament into the Old Testament to help us interpret a little bit. It was read just a moment ago. There's that famous line that we know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that, of course, is nobody, nothing, right? 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a screen for this. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God has amazing promises. David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, no. No, instead, I want to build you a house and I want to make you some promises. I've already cut off your enemies, he said in verse 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But then he starts giving out this laundry list of amazing promises that just absolutely... Um, dumbfounds and overwhelms David with speechlessness. I'm going to make your I'm going to I'm going to make your name great. Great like one of the great ones of the earth. In other words, among the greatest of kings bar none in every nation, you are going to be great on the face of the earth. Number 2, I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. You're going to whip them all and then you're not going to have any. And then number 3, the big kahuna right this is the big one i'm going to make your name great in all the earth you will always have one of your offspring on the throne of israel judah you are going to have this offspring a dynasty forever and of course that leads to jesus okay these promises are made in chapter seven and right as we turn to chapter eight god starts working on them now here's one of the things about this he will never be able to see that last one David will never be able to see God keeping his promise of a perpetual throne, right? Because he's not going to live long enough. He's going to see Solomon. He's going to know that Solomon's going to take the throne next. But he's not going to see on down the... How does he know God's going to keep this promise? That's why God makes many promises. He makes many promises so that you can see him keep some of them and therefore trust that he's going to keep the rest of them. That's kind of how God does it. Just take your pick. There's hundreds of them in Scripture, and there's a few of them, right? There's a few promises he's made to us that aren't fulfilled yet. And sometimes even the world makes fun of us for believing in them, like Jesus is going to return. Do you believe that tonight on a Sunday? You do realize it's been hundreds of years since he made the promise, right? It's been a long time. Second Peter says, there are people that mock you and scoff. Yeah, everything's gone on. So there's, there, he's not going to come in, in this thing. You know what? We believe he is. We believe he's coming again. Here's another one. Did you know you're going to die, unless the Lord comes first, you're going to die, and then he's going to raise you from the dead. You believe that? This is a mighty quiet crowd for a great promise. This is a, this is a good one, y'all. This is good. Are you going to be raised from the dead? Yes, you are. You're going to be raised from the dead. Now, you've never seen anybody raised from the dead. We know Jesus was. But we, we've never seen it, and yet we believe it's still here on a Sunday night in 2021. And here's another one. He's going to take us to be with him and with each other forever is that true that's the one i'm saying come on lord jesus let's make it come on i hear i hear levon saying this every day every day another call coming to church oh, come lord jesus she says over there i'm ready right I, that's right she's right these are promises now we we don't i, I can't guarantee you 
I can't show you how they're going to happen, but I'm promising. The reason why we know he keeps all those is he's made hundreds of promises over the years and kept every single one of them so that you can know that these are, and that's what he's going to do with David in chapter 8. So here we go, chapter 8. God starts in. We're going to show a map. I want you to see this map because it kind of shows, I don't know if you can see real well, but we're going to name these. So you just, as we read through this, I want you to notice where David is. After this, after this promise was made and he praised God for it, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and took this guy out of the hand of the Philistines, Right? Took the city, this weird... Okay, so, so over here where it says Philistines, a little bitty section over there by the Mediterranean Sea, out southwest, he defeats them, which is the main reason they picked Saul to be king in the first place. Take care of our Philistine problem, and he couldn't, and the Philistines took care of Saul, right? David takes the throne, and the first thing he does is subdues the people that were their perennial, perpetual enemies, that they were number one on their wanted list, right? They controlled all the iron works, and they kept Judah and Israel up here, and they couldn't defeat the Philistines, but David does. Then it says he defeated Moab. Now, this is weird. This is something you don't hear anywhere else. I don't know how to explain it. It's just something David did. It says, he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Had all these Moabites, and I don't know what his deal with the Moabites are. He's got Moabite blood in him, doesn't he? We read about that this morning. He's got Moabite blood in him. He took his parents to the Moabites to take care of them while he was on the run from Saul. So I don't know what's happened. Jewish tradition says... The Moabites hated David after that and even murdered his parents, but we don't have any evidence of that in Scripture. But for whatever reason, he had to overtake the Moabites. The Moabites, you can see them over here on this side, Moab there. He measures them with a line. Two lines he measured to be put to death and wolf, one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. This is weird. I don't know what kind of line this is. I'm thinking plumb line, but that's not what this is because you had to lay it on the ground. Anyway, there's certain people up above the line that died, and there's certain people below the line that became his servants forever. Really weird. But the point is he overtook his enemy. Verse 3, he also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Zobah's way up north. You'll see it near the top up there. Zobah is up there. So it's, it's up there near the Euphrates River. As he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates, it says. And David took from him, this is weird too, don't get mad at David, I don't understand this, but God, we'll see God approved of this, but he took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough of, uh, for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons, these certain areas where he was able to control these vast territories away from Jerusalem. He put garrisons all over, right? In Aram of Damascus and the Syrians, they became servants to David and they brought tribute. And the Lord, notice verse 6, the Lord, verse 5, yeah, verse 6, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So we're going to complete this phrase that is the title tonight. If the Lord be for you, who can be against you? Nobody. David defeated everybody in those colors right there. 
We're going to read some more here in just a minute. But that entire area, this has been controlled somewhat by the Babylonians over the years, the Assyrians over the years, the Egyptians over the years, but nobody has ever controlled that entire area like David did. Something unexplainable. The Lord gave him victory wherever he went. If the Lord is for you, he makes you promises. If the Lord is for you, no one can be against you. But that's not where the story stops. Notice he starts, he starts taking the spoils of war. When, you've, when you battle these people, not only do you take their territory, but you get their stuff. And you got all this spoils of war, and so he starts dealing with it. Verse 7, David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem from Beda, from Berathai, the cities of Hadadezer. King uh, David took very much bronze. And then when Toy... King of Hamath heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer. He sent Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him. He's, he's saying, please don't kill me. And I'm going to pay tribute to you. I'm going to voluntarily come under subjection to you. Because he had fought against his enemy. So the enemy of your enemy is your friend, right? And defeated him. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and bronze. These King David dedicated to the Lord along with the silver and the gold he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued. And here's the list. Edom. See that on the map? Edom. Moab. The Ammonites. The Philistines. Amalek. Amalekites that Saul didn't eliminate. From the, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Now what's he saying here? He takes all the spoils of war and he gives them to God. Why? You remember when Abraham had his victory? Comes up to Melchizedek and he says, I'm going to give you a tenth of all the spoils because I'm recognizing God's role in my victory. He doesn't take credit, doesn't get arrogant with his power. He recognizes God as the giver of these blessings and he's going to give it back. Here's a second one. Next screen, if you would. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's the first one. No one can withstand us. All the nations fall before David. Second, if God be for you, you will give thanks and you will obey him. In this particular way, you will give thanks and you will give back to him. That's what naturally happens when God is on your side and you recognize it. And he says it again. You see it. David made a name for himself. It says in verse 13, when he had returned from striking down the 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, then he put garrisons in Edom. He put these little strongholds to keep control of people. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. When the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord, here's a second time, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David didn't say, I got the victory. David said, it was given to me from the God I serve. God before you, no one can withstand you. If God before you, give thanks and obey, give back to him. And what you see is now he's got rest from all his enemies. There's one of the promises of chapter 7. And now his name is great, like among the greats of the earth. There's promise number two. The only thing that remains now is a perpetual throne, and he won't see the end of that but he knows already it's going to be fulfilled. So there is this understanding the Lord gave him victory. He didn't earn it completely. God was the giver of it. 
But notice the last one, verse 15. If God be for you, you're going to respond in a certain way. There's a lot of weird stuff. This is his cabinet. You know, like when a president becomes president, he starts naming all these people. You'll never know what they do anyway. But it says, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all people, and he names his cabinet. But here's what he does most important. He is just and equal with people. If God is for you, you will respond by being like him. You will imitate the kind of God he is in your character toward other people. So David, after his enemies are subdued because God is for him, after he's been obedient and responding to him with gratitude, he then starts living out a God-like existence. And that's what God's people do. We take God as our example, as our cue, and we live like him. God before you, you will live like him. So here's the moral of the story. If God before you, he keeps his promises. And then we, as people who receive his promise, we honor his will in our lives. That's the moral of chapter 8. Right after all these promises, we are New Testament people. These kinds of promises aren't given to us quite like this, but we have an abundant supply of them. God has been very gracious to us, and we all are up here on a Sunday night on top of this hill because what we are mostly driven by is a gratitude of a gracious God who's given us plenty. And for us then to come up and to give him the worship he asked for and also to take on more of his image is a natural response of those who've received his grace. That's why you're here. If God is for you, no one can be against you. But how do you know that God is for you? He's made it clear in his word. He's told us he is our greatest advocate. He initiated a relationship. He longs to have a relationship with every human being on the face of the earth, but he doesn't make you. He doesn't make you be his child. He allows you he tells you how. He woos you. He longs for you to do so, but he can't make you do it. He won't. So if you want God to be for you, you first have to decide you are for him. Do you want him to save you and you become like one of his children? And this evening you have another chance. You can name the name of Jesus from your lips, be immersed in the waters of baptism, rise to walk a new life, and from that moment forward, God is for you and no one can be against you. You'll be giving thanks and obeying him for the rest of your life, and you'll be living a life that imitates, emulates the God who saved you. That's 2 Samuel chapter 8. But what about you? Is God for you? Are you for him? That's a choice you get to make again tonight that governs your entire week, and you have this other opportunity. If you need to make a change in this, we stand ready to receive you as we stand and as we sing.